Thank you, choir. Let's pray together. Lord, in these moments, we ask you to speak to us. We ask you to strengthen us, to respond in obedience, that you would direct our lives in every way and in every day to your glory. Amen. Well, hopefully you're aware that we're in the middle of a little four-sermon series on the basics of being church. Uh, pattern I hope to follow each September as we prepare ourselves for the winter session of work in the life of our congregation and consider four key areas for church life. They are things that we need to be reminded of and encouraged in regularly. Gathering, going, giving, and gifting. Two weeks ago, Scott launched our uh, series helping you think through the very identity of what the church is. We, in Greek, are called the ecclesia, those who are called out to gather together for a purpose, coming together that we might praise our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in worship and in fellowship. Last Sunday morning, Henry helped us consider going. It's the necessary consequence, the follow-up to gathering. Having come together to make much of Jesus, we leave this place, we go to our homes, our streets, our jobs, our schools, our world, to make Jesus known. And this morning, we're thinking about giving. And I'm sure you're just overwhelmed with excitement about that prospect. That's your favorite church sermon topic, giving, said no one. Now, you may even ask, why, if, you're, if you've only got four priorities of church life, four things to focus on, why would you pick giving as one of the four? Should not prayer be up there? We need to pray more. Should not uh, engaging with God and His Word, should that not be in that list? And my answer is, well, don't blame me. Blame Dr. Luke. It's said of Luke's gospel account that more than 50% deals with the issue of money and our attitude to possessions. And particularly in the book of Acts, which Luke also penned, in that book there are little breaks in the narrative, little interruptions into the flow of the story where Luke stops and summarizes all that's been happening in the life of this church in the momentous days after Pentecost. And we read one of those, Elijah read for us, one of those little cameos of church life in, in Acts 4. Let me read just a few verses again. Acts 4, 33 uh, to 35. We find these words. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Already there's been one of these little summaries at the end of Acts chapter 2. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And in that summary, again, Luke highlights the generosity of God's people together in their sacrificial gifts for others. And here he does so again, and it's obviously no incidental matter. 
when Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about what's happening in the life of the church, when there are so many things that he could focus or draw our attention to, he chooses to note their use of financial resources. He marks this as the thing that distinguishes them from the rest of the world around them. Giving is one of the key identifying factors for determining the health of the heart of a congregation. Maybe some of you will have heard of the children's author, Lemony Snicket. Lemony Snicket said this, Even though there are no ways of knowing for sure, there are ways of knowing for pretty sure. And why we can never know what's really transpiring in the heart of any individual. When you see a life that's committed to radical, sacrificial generosity, you can be pretty sure that the grace of God is at work in that life. It was around about 400 A.D., Augustine wrote about the nature of sin. And he used a little phrase in Latin. It's called incurvitus in se. Incurvitus in se. He uses this. It it really means a life that's turned in on itself. And although you may not know Latin, you'll know how that works. How it is for someone to be turned in on themselves. Their their whole life is, is focused on, consumed with themselves. It's a life all about personal gain. And when a life is turned in on itself, that life has no time, no desire for giving glory to God. That life has no time, no desire for seeing the good of others. It's all about me. That's the natural state of fallen humanity. That's where we all would be unless God's grace worked within us. Encouraged us. In say the heart turned in on itself. But when that trajectory of the heart is transformed, when it's reversed, when lives are lived no longer primarily for self, but with a desire for God's glory and the good of others, indeed with no thought for self, then that's not natural. That is supernatural. God is at work in that life. God is moving by His Holy Spirit in that heart. Now, it is possible for us, as we look upon people's lives, to get things wrong, to misjudge. Let me share with you one little story to illustrate this. It was said that Charles Spurgeon and his wife, they would, they would sell, but they uh, point-blankly refused to give away the eggs that their chickens laid. They would give them to family, and you, know, family, you, you may have them, they said, to their family members, but you have to pay for them. And so they got the reputation of being tight-fisted, of greedy and grasping. And they simply allowed people to criticize them in that way. And it was only after Mrs. Spurgeon died that the full story came out that the money that they gained from selling the eggs of their hands went to support two elderly widows who had no other means of getting by. But because they were obedient to Scripture, they, they did not know or did not let their left hand know what their right hand was doing, as, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 3. They, 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 they allowed people to think ill of them rather than explain their action. So I use that illustration as a word of caution. Sometimes we can be mistaken, but if we see sacrificial 
generosity. You can be pretty sure that the Spirit of God is at work in that life. So back to our text. Here we discover that this rapidly growing, deeply impacting fellowship is uh, marked by grace-impelled generosity. These church members we see are saved by grace. Look down into the text. Look at verse 32. Who are these people of whom Luke is writing? And we find they are believers. He says the full number of those who believe. They've opened their hearts to receive God's good gift of salvation. And as a consequence of having their hearts opened by God's Spirit, they've opened their hands, they've opened their homes to meet the needs of others. God, at work in their lives by His Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, does as it must create both unity and generosity. They were one of heart and soul, we read. No one said that any of the things that He possessed was His own. Because we have to understand the heart and the hand are linked. What softens the heart necessarily opens the hand. The Spirit of God is evident at work in this fellowship. Look at the three greats in this little section. Verse 33, it says that with great power, the, the, the apostles were enabled to speak. And when judgment is swiftly brought on Ananias and and Sapphira in chapter 5, we read that the whole community and the church itself experienced great fear at God's judgment. And back into verse 33 again, uh, the irresistible and effectual calling of God in the hearts of these believers led them into the experience of great grace. Great grace was upon them all. Now, grace is a a multifaceted thing. But perhaps it's helpful to think of grace here in the terms that Paul alludes to in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's through Jesus' self-giving, sacrificial death upon the cross that that we find that our debt to God is not merely canceled, but it, it does so, so much more than that. Sometimes, unfortunately, that's where Christians stop at the canceling of our debts, but God does far more. With our elders-elect on Thursday evening past, we were thinking of the words of the Westminster Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 5. Let me read those for you. Westminster Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 5 says, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, for those whom the Father has given unto him. You see, this great grace of Jesus does three things for us. It cancels all our liabilities of the past, all the wrong that we have done, all the offense we've caused to God is forgiven and forgotten. Your, your liabilities of the past are swept away. 
And it also produces for us a legacy for the future. You know, there's this wonderful hope of heaven that is our abiding possession. So our past is wiped clean, our, our future is provided for, but what about now? And we have to understand that as we come into our relationship with Jesus Christ, a saving faith in Him, he, we find that His limitless resources are poured out into our present. You see, if you are a child of God this morning with us, His infinite resources are yours now. Great grace is upon you. You are saved by grace. And that necessarily means that you must then be spurred to generosity. Saved by grace and spurred to generosity. The early church, the proclamation of the gospel necessarily involved sacrificial giving. And the people, as they reflected on what Jesus had done for them, how he on the cross had given his life for them, how he had laid himself down a living sacrifice for them, they, in return, found no difficulty in self-giving and giving freely. They knew they could not deplete his endless resources, his infinite resources poured out into their lives. You know, during the summer months... uh, on the Radio Ulster program, Sunday Sequence, there was a, a segment, a panel discussion. And it was all about a, a four-page letter. This is the uh, four-page letter that a minister had sent out to every member of the congregation on matters of their financial giving to support the work of the fellowship. And, and the reason why this became newsworthy, why it made Radio Ulster and Sunday Sequence and a whole big panel of experts brought to this, the reason why was, I believe, that the strength of feeling expressed in this letter. Let me quote it to you. Minister writes in bold text, I have been shocked that so many give so little in their regular weekly offering to God. Later continued, it is so shocking because our attitude to giving is a fundamental part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, I'm not so sure I would have written a letter like that. But I fully understand the the sentiment it expresses. If people have a claim to have an experience of God working by His grace in their life, and yet in response they give sparingly to the ministry of the church and the mission to the world, then something is seriously amiss. There's something incongruent about that, something not right. For those who are saved by grace are spurred to generosity. As Warren Wearsby writes in his little commentary on the book of Acts, he says, When the Holy Spirit is at work, giving is a blessing, not a burden. Saved by grace, spurred to generosity, and thirdly, set free from greed. I said earlier that half the gospel account of Luke is all about money and possessions and what we do with material things. And part of the whole message of Luke's gospel is that Christians, believers, would be set free from the love of things. But that's only half the picture. 
God's people are to be freed from our love of things so that we might be established firm in our love for people. And if we uh, have any desire for things, it's only that they might be used to bless and serve other people. You see, you cannot have both of these things. You cannot love things and love people. You either love things and use people or you use things and love people. And when your heart is spiritually empowered by God to love others, then you will hold all material things very loosely because things have only value as they bless others. Verse 32 again in our text says, No one said, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. One of the joys that Brown family had in our years of living in Randallstown was a visit to the candy shop. If you're ever going through Randallstown, ever there, make sure you go to the candy shop on Main Street. The proprietors, Bertie and Eileen, will always give you a warm welcome. They're, they're a lovely couple, a good Christian folk. And, and they're always very, very generous in their portion size, particularly to us. And you go in, and whether it was ice cream or a quarter of sweets, you did well. And there were many happy visits there, and the Brown family were regular customers. So when I think of this illustration, that's where my mind goes. You can go wherever you want in your mind, but you can imagine this. You're in the sweetie shop. And you're taking your little child to the sweetie shop and you're offering to give him a, a, a selection of sweets. And, you know, there's that long process of, of what will it be? Will it be these or will it be those? And you're putting this up and picking up, you know, and eventually the, the, the child makes a decision. Maybe you have to hurry him a little bit along, but they make their decision and, and they get their sweets and you pay the person behind the counter. And you leave the sweet shop and you're walking back down the street and you politely ask, you know, can I have one of your sweets? And the child says, no, they're mine. Now, let me say that never, ever, ever happened in the Brown family. Never. But, but we all understand that exactly. You all laugh because you all understand that. And maybe if you had a bag of sweets and you really liked them and they were your favorites and somebody asked one, you would always be gracious enough and polite enough to give one. But you would feel a sting in your heart if it's true. You say, that was mine, and now you have it. And I feel it's lost. You see, and whenever someone says to you that, 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 that you need to give your money to God for the work of his kingdom, you say, but this is my money. This is mine. There's, there's a recoil in our hearts because that's our sinful human nature, uh, not allowing God to, to liberate us from our love for things. Do you understand that you own nothing. Everything is God's gift to you. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Everything we have, every breath we draw is a gift from our Father to us. How could we ever say no to Him? Should we not share in the work of his kingdom? Should we not desire the honor of his name? Should we not give richly, freely, generously, sacrificially to that cause? Last night at sea, we were singing together Robert Robertson's great hymn, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Do you feel that constraint upon your heart, that you are a debtor to grace? This isn't a matter of choice or, or thing. You just have to do this. 
in verse 33, and, and sorry, this is just me being a bit nerdish, but verse 33 says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's, it uses the word giving. But that word giving, it doesn't really mean giving in the original. It means paying back. Paying back. They were paying back through their testimony, through their willingness to make Jesus known. And that made huge demands upon them. It cost many of these apostles their lives all but John. And John didn't die, but it wasn't for the want of trying by his persecutors. These men were paying back to Jesus with their lives through their testimony, through their willingness to witness. See, those who are saved by grace are spurred to generosity, uh, and they're set free from greed. And finally, a little story as we close. Storing for glory. Storing for glory. In the first half of the 19th century, the celebrated Dutch artist, Ari Schaefer, was working in Paris. And on one occasion, he was painting this great portrait or this great, uh, this great scene, and he, and he wanted to introduce a figure of a, a beggar into this scene, whatever it was. So while he was pondering this, Baron Nathan Rothschild, one of the world's richest men at that time, who was a friend of Schaefer's, called into his studio in Paris. And he was sharing with him, would love to get a picture of a, just a figure in there of a, a beggar. And Rothschild said, well, listen, can I wait till tomorrow? Because I would love to be in your portrait. Let me come back tomorrow. I'll dress up as a beggar, and, and you'll paint me in. And, and, and Ari Schiffer thought, well, that's a bit weird. You're richest man in the world. But okay, we'll, we'll do that. And, and so the next day came, and uh, uh, Rothschild came in, and, and he, he looked like a beggar, a very poor, impoverished one. It was a very convincing costume. So Schaefer began to paint Rothschild into the painting. And, and while again the two men were engaged in this, another friend called. A man known for his generosity, for his kindness. And when he saw Rothschild as the beggar, his heart was moved. And without saying anything, just as he was leaving the art studio, he gave a little golden coin, a Louis d'Or, a very precious coin. And he just gave it to the beggar as he assumed. And the beggar took it and put it in his pocket. And ten years passed. And that man who had given the little coin to the beggar received a letter in the post. And in the letter was a check from Rothschild's bank for, for 10,000 francs. And this was the mid-1800s, so it was a lot of money. And with the check came a little letter that said, Sir, as you one day gave a little coin, a, a Louis d'Or to Baron Rothschild in the studio of Airy Schaefer, and he has invested and made good use of it. Today he sends the capital you entrusted to him, together with the interest gained. Unwittingly, yet wisely, this man had invested for his future. He didn't even know it, but he did. And surely you've been told many times, regularly reminded, you can't take it with you. There's no pockets in the shroud. There's no trailers on a hearse. You can't take it with you, but you can invest it for glory. You can store in glory. Can you imagine walking through heaven's gates? You come at last to your end, and you come to heaven's gates, and, and some stranger rushes over to you, throws their arms around you to welcome and receive you. 
And you wonder, who on earth is this person or who in heaven is this person? And the explanation is given. Because you. Because you gave to support that ministry. Because you gave to support that mission. I heard the news of the gospel. My salvation was secured through your generous gift. I've been longing for this day to say thank you to you for what you have done for me. I'm deeply grateful for those who had courage to speak the gospel to me. I'm deeply grateful for those who who gave, invested their money so that I might hear that message. But supremely, my debt is to Jesus Christ. The one who gave his life for me that I might live not just for time, but for all eternity in him. And if you too are saved by grace, then you must be, you are Although you may resist it, you are spurred to generosity, eager to give, holding nothing back from the one who gave his all for you. The one who went to death on the cross so that you might not die. How could we not live and love and give to serve such a Savior? Let's pray together. Father, we look to you remembering your open hand toward us. You who loved us and did not spare even your own son, but give him up freely for us. How could we not love you? How could we not give our gifts of service and energy and gifting and money and resources to you? Lord, you have given us that which is most precious, that which is utterly undeserved, the gift of Jesus Christ. In receipt of that gift, may we give you our all. That love so amazing, so divine, that demands my soul, my life, my all. May it be given to you. To your glory alone we ask. Amen.